Welcome to the Touching Into Presence podcast. This podcast is for people who are interested in bodywork, empowerment, and somatic-based practices. I am Nikki Olson. I'm Andrew Rosenstock. We are certified rolfers. Collectively, we're trained in various movement and bodywork therapies with an emphasis on somatic awareness and client resilience. Through conversations, our goal is to share and explore mind-body paradigms to offer empowerment possibilities. It was a pleasure to be in conversation today with Kelly Kane. Kelly studied Pilates with Romana Krasanaska and Hildy Paldi, completing her certification with the Pilates Institute. She has studied body-mind centering, continuum movement, Iyengar yoga, and done extensive CrossFit training. In 1999, Kelly opened the Kane School of Core Integration in New York City. The teacher training programs at the Kane School are singular in their emphasis on developing teachers' anatomical knowledge and palpatory skills while exacting an understanding of the classic Pilates repertoire. Kelly is currently developing a program for women in their prime time to optimize their health towards manifesting a legacy for themselves, their families, and future generations. Postmenopausal women are an untapped national treasure. Kelly's mission is to help women understand their unique biology after fertility towards optimizing well-being, strength, and power. In today's conversation, we spoke about getting outside for health benefits during COVID, winters in Vermont, her Pilates studio and training program, how she got into this field, trauma and polyvagal, a nice little talk about jade eggs, motherhood on and in the body, menopause, radiance, beauty of self-acceptance, self-love, and much more. For this talk, we were a bit all over the place in terms of conversation and jumping off points, and I did my best to edit it in as free-flung away as possible. But this is a real and raw talk, and there are a few times words not meant for underage people will appear. So with that, let's begin our talk. Thank you. Hi. Sorry I'm a little late. That's all right. You're just on time. How are you? I'm good. So nice to see your face. Good to see your face. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, it's, I'm excited to be here. Nikki, thank you for including me. Absolutely. Like to have a conversation with um, people from other places. It's fun, you know. And I just got off the mountain. I'm really sunburnt. I feel like there was a lot of sun on the mountain today. Oof. It's part of why I moved up here. I, um, I used to snowboard a lot. And well, you know, right, you were a professional snowboarder. No, I was just, I just dabbled in comp- competitive stuff. Oh, okay, you know, it was, it was, um, at that time, I knew all the female snowboarders in the whole country. <laughs> like, I'm old, you know, so and now, um, I, you know, my knees are going kind of, and so I like to go up more, I like to hike up with. On my split board this year, that's what I've been doing a lot of is hiking up and go spending less time with that load on my knees. I have a knee that I injured really badly in a snowboarding accident when I was like in my mid 20s, and it's degrading, you know. So I'm like, okay, gotta change up the approach. But I also have um, spent a lot of time with kids here and coaching, which has been really. it's been really cool, (laughs) fun and cool and crazy Mm -hmm. Um, working with a lot of little boys um, who are just like, they're just 
You know, they're just like, <laughs> you know, I'm just like, wait, you know. <laughs> so it's um, it's part of yeah, it's part of our life. It's a big part of our lives here. It's like what what we do a lot of spending mm-hmm. time on the mountain. Are you working with them as in like you're teaching them how to how to ski and how to snowboard? Or are you doing like uh, uh, no? I mean, it it's glorified. Uh, you know, just trying to keep them from killing themselves mostly. Mm-hmm. But there's a program um, here that you know, all, all, many Vermont schools have Friday uh, Learn to Ride or or ski programs, and I was just a part of that. Um, and it's a very cool community community based system. I mean, I lived out west and. You know, the West is very different than here. It's much more hip and happening. And um, I would say generally more people, more affluency. I mean, greater terrain, too, in some ways. But um, here it's a real community event to get kids on the mountain. And that's what that program is. And um, I got recruited uh, by a friend of mine who's just an unbelievable snowboarder, a woman, and she's taught a lot of kids to snowboard and she got me involved in it. And we didn't do it this year. And I was really sad. I always like every year, it's always a little overwhelming. (laughs) You know, it's a lot of wrangling and um, craziness. But like this year, I was like, oh, we didn't get to do that thing, you know. Because of COVID or just something else? Yeah. That was COVID. And, you know, I think there was just like not knowing. I was always confused by the fact that they didn't think the mountains were going to open. But I mean, and I have a friend who's involved with Breckenridge. She runs the ski school in Breckenridge. And they didn't know till the last minute if they were going to open. Like, you know, there's a bit there's I think that that's the thing. Like no one really knew what the terrain was going to be, you know, in terms of COVID. But, um, yeah, I think it's saved me this past winter to be outside um mm. it always saves me mm. that's yeah. what i would say yeah, that's, that's partly one of the reasons i went to vermont was um i was isolating with my parents so i was like let's get out but i was also like let's get out into nature and like i had responsibilities of chopping wood i was like perfect love it yeah it's uh, a very i mean here you know, the life here, I lived in Sun Valley, Idaho. I had my first Pilates studio in Sun Valley, Idaho. And, um, you know, the life here is, the winters here are no joke. They're rugged. They're yeah. they're very, um, you know, <laughs> they've almost crushed me sometimes because we'll get like amazing, beautiful snow and it's fluffy and gorgeous. And then, you know, like 18 inches and then the next day it'll pour rain. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) And then that'll happen five times in a row. Like it's just, it's so intense. And, and, you know, it's like wind and, you know, um, infrastructure is very old here. You Mm -hmm. know, it's very, the, um, the, you know, electricity goes out all the time everything you know like it's and many people's really truly many people heat their homes with wood still yep we were at my many friend's house there, my friend was pretty much wood and it's uh, nice that's nice for sure and, yeah it's I mean, part of the lifestyle i mean it's really people prep wood in the summer mm-hmm. like i know many people who 
they have land, they harvest wood, they prep it, they, they cure it, and that's how they heat their homes. They don't buy wood, they don't pay for electricity, that's what they do. So it, it's interesting too, because the pandemic, you know, I have, I, there's, people have gotten outside more than they ever have, right? Mm-hmm. It's a very, very cool thing. I love it. There's people coming up here experiencing the outdoors in very different ways. And yes, the East, skiing the East is no joke. It's no joke. Mm-hmm. Like I just like it's a lot of times it's intense mm-hmm. and sometimes Cold, it's not that, fun. <laughs> no, that wind is miserable. Like I I don't like winter anymore. I loved it growing up. Now I'm done with this shit. I'm just done with it because New England winters are like people wonder why New England people are sort of cold and negative. It's like, have you seen the winter? And then have you seen the <laughs> summer? The summer is like humid and hot. It's funny rosenstock i think so (laughs) by the way i I just want to say kelly kane amazing superhero name amazing superhero name wait hold on surveying the landscape i love that i need to be a superhero you are a superhero oh you are we can kind of use that maybe to launch in but i um you know i already shared this with kelly that i you know, I was interested in becoming a Pilates instructor mostly because I just wanted more tools in my tool bag to support Rolf movement, which is kind of like, you know, the Rolf, Rolfing somatic training. And I found myself in New York on a whim and, you know, there's so many different types of Pilates schools and, but I'm not like a dancer or it's not how my brain's wired in any kind of choreographed type of way. And I I don't even know how I stumbled upon your course. And when I landed in there and met you, I just felt so lucky because it integrated so much of like things that I was already starting to learn. I mean, this was like, gosh, maybe at least 10 years ago, for sure. Probably more. I've already been in Colorado for 10 years. So 15 years. And it's great because, you know, um, I still meet people and when you're like, oh, what was your Pilates training? And oh, Kelly Kane. Oh, I did Kelly Kane's class too. <laughs> so like it's, um, it's, you, you bred a really fun community family mm-hmm. and that space that you had or still, I don't know where you are with the relationship with oh. connect, kinetic, connected, connected. Yeah. It's connected. still there. We still, it's still happening. So are you in co-ownership with them or? So when I, um, I sold the business, but I retained the school. And so when Matt, you know, that was the terms of the deal. But then once I moved here, uh, Matt and I, we've always been really good partners. um, And we became partners once I moved here. So he's the co-director of the Kane School in my absence. and it's worked out really well. You know, he's like, it's great. He's, he's a very detailed business person, I would say. And that's what I wanted. I had just done it for too long. I was like 12, I think for 12 years, I worked every day and I was done, you know, yeah. and um, he runs the school. Um, he runs the, there's a physical therapy practice that's thriving there. He runs the studio. And it's surviving through the pandemic, which is a small, 
miracle. Um, he navigates it. He's kind of like the consummate, you know, just kind of steady. He's steady. You know, when the pandemic happened, I was like, Matt, (laughs) and he was like, it's going to be fine. I was like, thank God. Okay. All right. (laughs) Because good. It's a lot in New York to have a brick and mortar space. I know exactly what that means financially. If Tell you that space was huge. Yeah, was if a- you're closed, we were closed when World Trade Center happened. We were on 17th Street. Um, or September 11th happened, and we were we were closed for a little while, and, and our numbers were really down. It was so intense for me. You know, just, where where were you in 17th Street? Um, between Broadway and Fifth. Ah. Uh. Yeah, well, you you were right. Uh, they were nineteenth. Was Laughing Lotus right? There was so that's where my that's where we are now. So we, oh, really? Yeah. Oh. So not in Laughing Lotus, but Laughing Lotus is between is on nineteenth between fifth um, and Broadway. Fifth, no, fifth and sixth. Fifth and sixth. And we are between sixth and seventh. Okay. On the is same it, side. Of the street. Is it still in the same space that you had your school in, or did it's, it move? No, it's still in the same place on 19th Street. And the previous space was on 17th between Broadway and 5th. There's something kind of, you remind me a little bit of Dana uh, from Laughing Lotus. It might just be the kind of hair and the excitement, uh, but there's a similarity. Maybe it's something in that part of the street that is just uh, oozing out. Something in the sewer is coming up that you're getting. (laughs) You know, about you, I, I looked a little bit and you're, I guess your resume will say is pretty amazing. And from what I read, tell us a little bit, tell our people a little about Kelly, like what brought you into this work? I find it really interesting to say, what is it you do? Because we can give these labels for things that don't actually really describe anything. Like you could say you're a Pilates teacher, but I don't even know what that means because there's so many different types of Pilates. And also like, what does Pilates really mean besides a person's last name? Tell us a little bit about you and what it is that you uh, work with. Um, so hmm. it's interesting. It's again, I think for all of us, right, it's shifted a lot in the pandemic. And because I've had a pretty massive life shift, divorce, moving, um, it, that's also affected how I work. Um, so I came to Pilates with the clinical, like, um, you know, pretty heavy anatomy background. Um, a lot of, you know, I was going to go to medical school, um, I, so I came to Pilates with that, that orientation. And also I was kind of a, I guess, an adrenaline junkie. And so I used, I always say I like to go fast. Um, I'm very slow, but I like to go fast. And so I had it and, and I had a lot of injuries too. And that's another way that I came to it. I had a pretty significant shoulder injury that um, was a snowboarding injury where I dislocated my shoulder and uh, was in PT. It had it was dislocated to here. I had to have it ma- manually relocated in the hospital. I was in PT for five days a week for five months, and I was discharged with an arm that was completely dysfunctional. And so that's kind of I, I was like, okay, well, how am I going to do this? And I I under the tutelage of actually the woman who taught me how to snowboard and um, kind of, you know, bringing what anatomy information I had and movement background I had, I started to figure out how the hell am I gonna heal myself? And 
I made my way to New York and, um, you know, I've studied like continuum, CrossFit, hot Pilates, Bikram, Baptiste, um, uh, you know, meditation. I've been, I mean, one of the things I've been doing right now is I meditate a lot. I've always meditated, you know, and my first meditation teacher when I was 19 and she told me, you know, I don't know. I think this is a common thing. She said, you brush your teeth every day, twice a day. You take care of your consciousness, consciousness twice a day. And that was it. I started when I was 19. So I really truly do meditate twice a day. And I've been doing that for a long time. Um, and I've worked a lot in women's sexuality and, um, and, uh, pelvic floor health and sexual health and well-being. Um, I'm, I've put together this whole trauma recovery program because in, well, because it's there, <laughs> because it's everywhere, right? Polyvagal theory and body informed psychotherapy. And like, it's just everywhere right now. And in the end of my relationship, I, um, there was trauma. My, uh, now ex-husband had some mental instability and focused, like I became the punching bag, not physically, but in every other way. And so I really had to get out of that situation and heal myself. And, uh, and really the way that I knew I was traumatized is my kids were both like, what's up with you? <laughs> like, what happened to you? And I was like, what, you know, and my can face. You ever, um, can you speak a little bit more to that? Because I think you definitely touched on the fact that like, I think trauma is kind of a buzzword right now because there is the polyvagal theory and there's a little more support around it. But I also think this pandemic has brought up past or current trauma and I think for some people, they're feeling things, but don't have the language or don't know what trauma may look like. Mm -hmm. So if you could, I think it would be helpful if you tapped into a little bit of that. Yeah. Personal so, experience. Yeah. So it's the, you know, there's the, the dorsal vagal system, the sympathetic and ventral vagal system. Uh, dorsal vagal is freeze right? It's like you, you experience some kind of trauma and your social emotional engagement system dampens and you, your face becomes um, like, this is what happened to me is it wasn't that I didn't smile. It's just my face be, stopped moving. You know, like I move a lot, right? You see me, I'm moving. My face start, became more like a mask. Um, and I was—I didn't even totally know that that was what was happening to me. Um, sympathetic, like a sympathetic response would be like, you know, trauma lands on me. And instead of me freezing, I go into fight or flight, right? So every time I, and, you know, I think that many of these patterns are established when we're children you know, like if there's been some real trauma in your life, um, then those patterns are established when you're children, but they can be established as an adult. And mine was really established as an adult, I would say. Um, 
And then there's the ventral vagal, which is like you have some kind of, um, you know, or a healthy ventral vagal system. You have some kind of insult that lands in you as some kind of trauma, you know, because trauma lands in everyone differently. Um, with the ventral vagal system, like if you're, if it's kind of our highest executive functioning trauma response and recovery program, and if it's functioning well, you usually adjust and adapt and move on, right? And so um, for me, I went into dorsal vagal response, which was freeze. So um, I, I guess what it, it, it felt like was fear and lack of safety. And so I just became quieter and more invisible. And um, I didn't even completely understand that was happening until my kids were like, what the hell is going on? I mean, I did understand things were bad, but I didn't understand that it had landed in, in me in that way. Um, and then I started reading, um, I started reading, I, I went to therapy, I started reading, I um, realized that going to therapy really wasn't what I needed. Um, I think we all like therapy. Well, I mean, I like therapy, I wanted to talk to someone, it was useful for me, but um, I didn't, I didn't feel like that was going to heal that frozen state I was experiencing. Um, and when I started doing the work of um, Stanley Rosenberg and um, Quan Chu, who, you know, we worked with, who I worked with and kind of integrating some of the stuff that I learned in my craniosacral therapy training, um, I, I started, I put together a protocol to work on healing my trauma. and. Um, it really worked, <laughs> like really worked. It was stunning how much it worked. Um, was your, just quick question, the, the cranial you did was biodynamic or biomechanic? Um, a little bit of both, but mostly up-ledger, okay. you know, but I also studied with Sharon Weiselfish. Yeah, um, I asked just because a lot, of, a lot of the biodynamics, I feel like has so much to do, like it integrates really well with polyvagal mm -hmm. and even... I was listening to a biodynamic talker today and he was sharing sort of about like, what is the difference about dynamics? But one thing thinking about trauma is that biodynamics is really just like feeling for the, I'll say the energy, but what I mean is what it means is not like the, the chi or the ethereal energy, but really like something has happened an impulse has happened. Right. And how does the body keep that, you know, so whether it's a, a hard physical impact on the body and there's like a stored energy or like an emotional where you're basically holding a shield up, right? If someone's attacking you, you can, you can keep smiling, but it takes energy to not fight back. And it also takes energy to fight back and all that. So we sometimes are, and when, when we're stuck in that, in that freeze response, that's also a held energy that we don't always recognize is there and, and rightfully so because the body is needs to, you know, take the kids to school and, and do everything else. So it, it's not like, you know, Oh my God, melting down, but everything you're saying to me just lands like perfect. So when you said cranial, I was curious, but I'll, I'll let you go back now after that coffee riddled uh, segue. <laughs> 
<laughs> I wish I had a coffee right now in my hands. Um, well, I, I think this is important to, I mean, here you've spent decades of, have learned it, taught millions of people. And I think it's important to, well, I want to thank you for being vulnerable and sharing that. And also, I think it's important to illuminate how trauma can be sneaky. Mm-hmm. And and like you, we've already said, it doesn't have to be this huge known traumatic event of like, oh, I was traumatized. It's, I think, worth noting that even if it's just slowly titrate, which kind of can happen, I think, more in a, a verbal abusive situation or just, you know, it could be a, a negative boss or somebody where you just constantly getting these little um, imprints of trauma that starts to build up over time. And if the nervous system isn't in a place to handle it, it it resides in our body. Mm -hmm. I would love to hear more of what you've learned and your protocol that you created of how to um, rid yourself or, or mitigate the trauma that, I mean, would you say trauma ever leaves? Yeah. But by the way, I, I just want to throw my sense in here, and we, and we will let you speak, Kelly. I mean, you're all the guest. But <laughs> I'm but here to learn. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't say that trauma uh, is tricky. I would say trauma is just an is just a, uh, an experience. It's just a phenomenon. It's the our, our nervous system or our response to trauma is what's what's tricky, and it, all of us are having these different responses to it. But I I, I don't I mean I, I don't think of like a car accident isn't tricky. It's like how that that action, that impulse, that that phenomenon, and how we or the person in that processes or doesn't process and responds responds to that. That's just my more take on it for specifics. And I could be wrong, but I'll throw that there. I mean, I think the human organism is each person is completely singular, you know, and so how. I mean, what happened with me was a was uh, like what I've I've often heard myself saying. It's funny that I say this is that it was okay until it wasn't. Like there was like it it I was able to keep my like let my now ex husband's rage, craziness, bipolar, depression whatever you want to call it, I was able to be like, oh, that's over there. And I'm here. Right. Until one day it was like, it was really directed at me and I just couldn't, like, I couldn't take it. Like, and so I really shut down. Now, um, it's one of the gifts of the pandemic is that I've been able to work, really work on myself. Like really, I've been alone a lot. I am a social being. I, um, you know, I love people. I also love to be alone, but I have been able to really go into the cave. And, you know, my ex once, once one day said, you know, when I was being vulnerable, he's like, you just got to get over it. And I was like, nah, that ain't happening. I'm going through it. I'm not going over it, you know? And that's really the only way to heal. Now, um, you know, this was a, a progressive process. There were some events that were like tipped the scales, but um, for me, um, and I've been looking into 
sexual assaults and the trauma around that because the vagus nerves at nerve ends, it terminates in the cervix. So, um, you know, I've been really looking into how to use polyvagal theory to rewire, help women rewire and recover from sexual trauma. Um, I've been working on that myself because I think it landed in me in some ways in that way. And um, what I did is I just was through a bunch of different um, meditation practice, somatizations that I kind of put together for myself to prime my nervous system. But I've also been priming my nervous system for a long time. Like I've been meditating a long time. Sometimes it's hours a day. Sometimes it's 10 minutes. Sometimes it's three minutes, right? Well, not three minutes, but 10 minutes, I would say. Um, So really it's a lot about using... um, eye movements and head and neck movements and um, humming and uh, sometimes it's, uh, you know, becomes like continuum movement, um, a sounding stuff because I did a lot of that. Um, it's been, uh, I've been doing this jade egg practice to to kind of um, work on the termination of the vagus nerve at the cervix. So doing stuff at the top and doing stuff at the bottom. Um, It's kind of taken on all these different refractions, um, but the the true practice is really um, breathing and simple, like, you know, four simple moves I do every day. And then masturbating with my jade egg, FYI. So, because I, I, so that's interesting because I, I didn't know that the jade egg was for uh, self pleasure, but I, I knew women were, who were using it for strengthening their pelvic floor, I guess. And my issue with it is I know a lot of people who, and I don't, this isn't you, but I know a lot of people who didn't know enough and were telling people to like walk around all day. And I even, I had a client once and I was doing some cranial and I was on her feet and I was just like, wow, she is such, such a tight ass. And I, you know, I sort of instructed her to, find her perineum and let, and just see if she could release her perineum. And she stopped and said, hold on, reached into her pants and took an egg out. And I, and it was her, her nervous system just completely like it felt different. Her tissue felt completely different. I, I had no idea that it was there, but she was walking around for like days with that. And I didn't think that was a good thing at, at all. It wasn't a jade. It was a different stone, but maybe. Yeah. yeah uh, I don't, I mean, I don't, it, that seems excessive you know, um, but I don't know. I, I think I just don't know what's best for anyone else except for myself at this moment. Sure. That's so, Oh, that's so beautiful to hear. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, what I've found with it is, um, I found there was, so, you know, I think so much of what we do as people who help to facilitate healing in other folks is so much of it comes from our own process, right? And and for me, what happened in this divorce process, but really in the process of healing and taking the time to process and heal and get into it, like really go deep into it. And there was no avoiding there was no smoking weed. There was no hanging out with my homies. There was no drinking myself because I would never do that. Drinking myself into a hold. There was no distraction. Right. And so what I, uh, there was, you know, my ex 
uh, I went through menopause and um, he didn't have the capacity to kind of adjust and adapt to the changes in intimacy that needed to happen, which was not about a dry pussy. It was not about, you know, it, that's not what it was about. It was about um, for once you transition to menopause, I feel like, um, you know, for many humans, we need to reestablish um, like what our relationship is to our sexual selves. You know, I think about this Margaret Mead um, saying that, you know, most Western adults will have three primary relationships in their lives and they'll, it'll be with three different people or one person. And I think that really comes from ourselves. Like we will have three manifestations of who we are that at least this has been my experience, right? It's like a younger me, a middle me and an older me. Right. And so I've really, I really had to go in and, you know, I was kind of traumatized around that situation of like, this happened during menopause. There was a lot of demands for sex. And I was like, I want to get intimate. I don't want to be fucking on the floor of the living room. Sorry. Like there, it needs to be a different way of being. And, um, I mean, sometimes, but not all the time. And so Kelly, well, what are you, I mean, you're kind of speaking to, as your body has been transitioning from, you know, into menopause. And that's a huge thing. Like it's probably not getting the credit that it deserves because it's kind of that Western mindset of like, oh, your body's changing. Here's some hormones to deal with it. Not the whole full mind body processing that goes through. And so, yeah. you know, when you're trying to expect a partner to kind of go along with that. And he's not really in the bandwidth to kind of just see you. Mm -mm. And I mean, this is a kid and we're using you this situation as an example, but I think that's, I think that you're articulating something really important of recognizing that we are changing beings and there is a emotional, psycho, emotional, biological adaptation that needs to follow through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, this is, and this is why this is like a circuitous conversation to talk about the jade egg is that, um, is really what happened is that I realized that, um, from that experience, I realized that I, I'm in this world and I didn't understand menopause, right? I've been in women's sexual health for a long time. I didn't really understand it because the information out there was not appropriate for me. I don't think it was generated by women per se. I think it was generated by, um, you know, uh, the allopathic system, which is very masculine in its approach, I would say. And um, I think that I, I started to put together this whole healing framework, which did include the jade egg. And I think it was in part for me to create context to be able to understand what my, my self-sexuality was transitioning into from its previous state of fertility and what that means because sexuality is mine. It's not yours, right? I choose to share it with you, but it is mine, 
right? And so if we're always in this kind of, you know, relationship to other without really truly tending to our own self-care, sexual self-care and, and nervous system self-care, um, then we, we aren't capable of being in partnership with someone else, right? Like really, truly. And that's been partly the gift of this process for me is to really be able to, to get into that. And, you know, um, being with someone who he didn't know what the hell was going on with me. You know what I mean? Like he, he needed his own support too. So it's like, it's no fault of his. It's that's not the point. The point is, is that that situation drove me into a real inquiry as to what was happening to me. And then also, or what's not, that's not right. What was happening within me because it wasn't happening to me, it was happening within me. And then I created a whole menopause program from it. <laughs> so I have this whole menopause program, but the jade egg was part of the process because what I realized is that if I was gonna treat my vagus nerve from tip to tail, the tail is the cervix. And it just so happened, I started reading about jade egg and I had done some Taoist sexual practices when I was in my twenties. and. Um, I got into to working with the jade egg as a way to, I don't know if you remember this, Nikki, but when I teach pelvic floor, I always, you know, I'm mostly teaching like um, pubococcygeus, iliococcygeus, ischiococcygeus, transverse perennial muscles, bulbal spongiosis, ischiocavernosis, like I'm teaching structure and how that relates to intersegmental stability and um an inner unit engagement towards healthy, happy, low backs, continence, um, you know, integrity of the genitalia in men and women. But, but I do often mention this, I just had never spent a lot of time with it, is that for a woman, if you go into the vaginal canal, um, it's a muscular structure, right? If you go inner outer labia, inner labia, introitus, which is the opening, and you go up into the vaginal canal, that's muscular tissue, right? It's circular. Um, if you take off that superficial la layer, the next layer is straight up and down muscular tissue, right? So circular, straight up and down. And I had never really spent a ton of time getting into that structure. I had spent some time like working on G-spot stimulation, female ejaculation, and, and um, understanding that that structure was intimately connected to female pleasure, but that wasn't what I was teaching so much. And so that's what I really started to get into. And I started to get into strengthening that structure. And then it kind of inadvertently took me into this vagus nerve practice because it's the termination of the vagus nerve for women is the cervix. So if you're going to approach it as it exits the cranium, because it's a cranial nerve, right? Um, then it runs down, wandering nerve, but then it ends in the cervix. So that's the tip to tail. And so it just was like the gods and goddesses led me there, I would say. <laughs> I love it. And this is just, again, reminding me why I loved your training so much because it's so much more than Pilates. It's like Pilates for, for well-being. And um, I mean, just here talking and I'm just kind of thinking of like, you know, 
um, to get like, what's, what's your bio? And then, and then how we're brought, brought back to, I mean, we've just been talking about so much that isn't like the court classic choreographed Pilates, you know, I mean, what it was just fun is like, yeah, when we were talking, when we were being taught the pelvic floor and like the sequences or the, the exercises that support that, you brought, you brought in so much more information that I find very unique in the, in, in the general umbrella of the movement community, but also very refreshing, I think. And, and maybe this is just my perceived bias of the Pilates, because I think Pilates sometimes can get very uh, rigid and like, yeah. You do it this way and breathe this way and you only do this, this, these sequences by this prescribed way and you got to look a certain way. And, um, and I just feel like one of my questions is um, why was Pilates your medium to bring in all these other wonderful things? Because you have this plethora of trainings that you brought into this popular modality? You know, I think Pilates really has provided a, a, like a medium to explore. Like I really do. And um, for me, I think there was, you know, I came to it through injury. So it was a good format to be like, okay, we're working on biomechanics. We're working on local and global recruitment. The equipment is adaptable. And I think there was, you know, when I first started teaching Pilates, I knew everyone who was teaching Pilates in the country pretty much. Like we would all come together. And I mean, there was classical you know, kind of authentic Pilates, which I was, I came from Ramana. I mean, I studied with Ramana, but then there were, you know, more evolved perspectives. And I think really, truly what the reason that I think that it gave for many of us, you know, a format, uh, like a container for inquiry, right? And so, um, like, where I started was really, I think, with biomechanics and bones and muscles and, you know, the the map like that's and that's what I teach right I really truly teach the map because I feel like if you understand the map meaning anatomy and physiology and basics of um you know neuromuscular I mean sorry musculoskeletal anatomy and some neuromuscular anatomy but if you really understand that it's like you get your you know you give someone um, you teach someone how to fish instead of giving them three fishes. And for me, it was like a jump off point to all these other modalities. I mean, you know, yes, I, I had, you know, I had, I learned how to meditate when I was 19. So that always came in. My parents died when I was, both of my parents died when I was a kid. So I had like, you know, I, I've lately I've been thinking about this is that, You know, when we on the road, when there's real crisis, those are the moments that we galvanize our soul's purpose, right? It's like you either take the opportunity to flower and to grow 
and you have, thank God I had this, the, the groundwork in my physiology and in my family and my history to be able to do that. And I think it was the combination of like kind of my life experience and the modality and what the modality provided that created this very specific jump off point for inquiry. I often think that way. And I think it's a digestible, it's digestible. You know, it's like people can relate to the movement. Gyro, you know, I took the gyro training. Gyro is harder. It's harder for people, you know, like, like spirillic DNA movement is harder. Like, you know, it's like, it's easier to move like Robotron. Right? It's easier to move in the sagittal plane and the coronal plane. You know, it's easier for the, and, and it's organizational for the nervous system too. It is, it, it does help to, organize the system for sure. Um, and I also feel like it is the modality I go back to, to maintain my joints. It is, it's what I go back to. It's like, if I need to reset my joints, which I do need to do a lot, it's, I go back there for that. Do I think it's like, is it where I, um, like, like, do I get worked up and juiced by it? Like I used to? Nah. You know, I, I rather be thinking about other things, but um, I do think there's that it really does well with joint health and uh, physical organization. For sure. I, I think that like hearing your sort of what you get juiced about also ties into your quote unquote three life stages. Right. And I think yeah. that's kind of what a lot of us do. We get into something and especially on um you know, I, I don't want to say that Pilates is a jumping off ground because for some people it is the ground, it's everything. But if, you know, we have these jumping off grounds that we get into and then they, you know, they can open doors. If we want to go through the door and then we can see, oh, wait, there's another room and oh, wait, there's even another room. And, um, you know, those things that are our foundations are our foundations. And they're, you know, I, I didn't go to Pilates. I ended up going to yoga by a, a twist of fate I, I have i have nothing wrong with pilates um it just it didn't really necessarily i didn't resonate with it so much i did find it too rigid um and i do find yoga a lot of times too loose um mm -hmm. kind of always thought something in between could be uh, a, a value um but uh yeah i i, I thought it was really interesting because my my view of pilates is from working with pilates people and talking to people is as a view, it's not the reality. It's just how I've taken it. And almost most Pilates people I, I speak to, if I'm like, yeah, what's your meditation practice? It's, it's not there. Uh, they don't necessarily believe in it, which I find funny when you have body mind stuff, but that's a side story. So when you started talking about that, I was kind of like, hmm, what, <laughs> how can that be? You know? Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, there is a real history of rigidity and, 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 you know, a lot of the, um, the culture, the original culture of Pilates was rooted in traditional dance culture. And there is a lot of, um, you know, negative reinforcement for teaching people and there's shame associated with it you know in in all the pos body positivity that's out there in the pilates world i'm like you know when i first started teaching pilates people i had people tell me that i looked fat 
pretend that I didn't look like a Pilates teacher. And I was like, that's not my problem, actually. That's, <laughs> I'm going to put that on you. <laughs> I was always confused. And, you know, there's all these people who are like, you know, I was always, I've always been big. That's always been my thing, but it's not my, I'm good. I'm good generally. I mean, there's been times in my life where I feel like I probably, like after you have a baby, you know, it's like when you're in, when your body has been, <laughs> you know, co-op. I can relate to that. <laughs> I know you're only four years out. You're still like, you know, when your body has been co-opted by another human being, it's hard to um, really, you know, feel, <laughs> I don't know, feel fully alive in who you are besides being part of that, I guess. That was well, there's, my, I, my per, there's not enough celebration in like the different shapes and abilities of a body can be. And there's too much of like, you look this way means you can perform this way. Mm-hmm. And um you know, and it's a struggle because I, I, I generally feel great in my body. Of course I have like my little aging aches and pains and stuff, but I've never felt weak. I've always found strength in my, in my shape, but you know, but I sometimes have to like catch myself that I'm not going into a body shaming um, place because I'm like, Oh, my body, and especially being in Boulder, Colorado, where there's all sorts of fit people. Mm -hmm. um that look a particular way and see I have to catch myself I consider myself fit but am I chiseled no um but there's so much identity in looking a certain way to define what your strength worth is and Mm -hmm. hopefully in time we can start shifting that point of view because as we've seen I mean some of these super skinny they look fit aren't really all that strong like yeah and my thing is like adaptability (laughs) that's like rolfing's big thing (laughs) yeah like uh, is it rolfing's big my thing it's always been people are like why and i'm like adaptability man like you got to be adaptable so whatever like whatever promotes adaptability based on what you, you know, what your system is, then that's what you should be doing. And I really do believe that that's, you know, for me, I did I wasn't born. I often think about this. I really come to this lately is like, I think that I came to this path, Andrew, we were talking about it a little bit is that I wasn't born embodied. Like I didn't feel, I don't know if anyone is, but I, I came, I was born into a family with, where athletics were super important. It was, um, everyone was super athletic. I was somewhat athletic, but I felt like it took me a really long time to understand how to live in this body, like how to feel comfortable. And not, I'm not talking about like shape necessarily, but like how to work this body, like how to work it, how to stay comfortable, how to stay fully capable of doing anything I want to do, like climb over a fence or do on a snow, go on a snowboard or do whatever I wanted to do. And I think that that's really truly took me time. I, I really 
took me till my mid forties to understand how to live in this body. I, I, that's my personal experience of my physicality. Um, and I don't, I don't know why, <laughs> but that's what it, that's what it feels like to me. You know? Well, I, I think as far, I, I don't know why either, but I think there are people, uh, much older than you still, who still don't, you know, like I, I, I love my dad. Uh, he's not listening. So I'm not worried, but he's, he has, has no body awareness. He's very disembodied. He's an amazing person, very bright, very loving. Um, I, to the best of my knowledge have never had a child inside of me. Um, but, uh, and this is not a comparison, but I had an extra hundred pounds when I was younger. Yeah. I was very heavy, uh, very disembodied. And I have the same sort of thing. A lot of times people will look at me because I'm six foot four and I range from 200 to 230, depending on the, the day, pounds, not kilos. And people will be like, you're a yoga teacher? And I'm like, yep, why? You know, because I don't look like those Instagrammers at all. Uh, and I had, so I, I had a lot of body shame because I was heavy, especially as a teenager being really heavy. And now... Uh, you know, my fiance is very thin. Uh, she's not thin, but she's 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 not fat. She's a fine weight, but she weighs herself every day because she has this belief that a number is equivalent to something. And I'm like, I don't care what my weight is. How do I feel? And I'm telling her, like, forget the number. Like, how do you feel? What you know? Um, and part of that is she's Chinese, and I'm going to get in trouble for this, but generally there's a big difference in culture, and not that all Chinese are disembodied, but people of communists are generally not taught to be in their bodies because that is a threat to power. And it's amazing. If you ever go to China, just watch mainlanders walk. It's like, you can, you can literally see mainlanders versus, uh, you know, Chinese born in the States or even Taiwanese because they move so different. There's this disembodiment. And yeah. So like for me getting to that place and I'm, and I'm still probably relatively disembodied. I, I love catching it. I love being like, Oh, there's, there's some traumatic experience I haven't let go of. I'm still reacting or, oh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in this or I'm moving in this sort of way. I, I, I love it because it's a, it's a way of growth. Uh, and I don't view it as like, oh, shit, I'm still so far away to go. I'm like, all right, cool. It's experience. And the radiant, like when I say like I've learned, it's always a process, right? But I think that it's, it's this idea of embodiment and, and, and radiance, right? It's like, like, um, like that's what is the most, I think that for me, that's the thing that I'm most attracted to is I remember I was thinking about this the other day when I was in high school, I met a woman who she taught dance and I danced. I, I was not a good, I was not like someone who was on a dance track, but I danced a lot in my life. Like I'd always take dance classes and whatever. And she was probably in her mid sixties and she came and taught a dance class. And I remember the first time I saw her, she was stunningly radiant, like stunningly, like not like, I just like, radiating beauty, radiating sensual sexuality, radiating um, being grounded in who she was and her authentic self, right? I just had a thought of this the other day because I did write this menopause program and um, I'm gonna launch it in like, I don't know, probably six weeks. 
And what I, she came to mind because um, one of the things that happens for women in the kind of hormonal alchemical process of, um, of post-fertility is that, the, you know, the hormones set us up for actually like a lot of juiciness and radiance and um, turning back to our community and supporting our community with a loving open arms in a way that's bigger than just your local, you know, your nuclear family, right? It's, um, it's many women also become really comfortable with who they are as they get older. They don't have the same, you know, like burden of, you know, shame or self-talk or whatever. And I was just thinking about like, what, I guess what, what made me think about that is like, what do we identify as beautiful, you know? And that to me, like someone who stands where they stand and is in, is radiant and in that, right. And feel, feel comfortable. Totally. Totally. I mean, I'm, I'll probably get in trouble with this because I am a male, but when you were saying this, like I was thinking it's not, it's being overweight isn't unsexy. It's, yeah. it's how the person, okay, this is a broad, I'm going to be getting in trouble, but I'll try to say it in a way that it's how they feel about themselves that's represented outwards. So when they're like, this is who I am and I'm comfortable and yeah, I've got a few, you know, a few extra or a few hundred extra pounds or kilos, but they're like, that's who I am. That's sexy. It's beautiful. It's radiant. It's all that. It's powerful. Uh, and unfortunately, because a lot of the society puts a what should be something, then then people who might be saying I'm not that, and then reflecting that that's when it it can be seen differently. But when they are, and like you said, in themselves, they're powerful. They're like whatever. Like fucking, who cares? I have this. I am this. That that's me. You know, like. For me, because I, I I was fat, I have, you can't see, but I have skin. Like I, and I remember at one point being like, maybe I should have surgery just to get rid of that. And I was like, no, that's who I am. Like that, those scars, those um, stretch marks, like that's me, that's my history. And to try to hide that is to hide a part of me. Um, and so just be like, hey, whatever. Now it's also very, it's much easier for a man to be heavy in our society than a woman. And I totally get that. And I get that I have really little to say in any of that, but uh, just to echo sort of what you're saying, like, yeah, it's that that comfortableness. Comfortableness is, and acceptance is, is, is powerful. It's sexy. It's- yeah, I mean, I think that that's really the, the that's beauty. Right. And so I think that it's not about um, I think that that's really that's the gold standard. Right. It's just owning who you are and rocking it, uh, you know. Yeah. And and uh, uh, like just thinking about it more like when my girlfriend was sending me pictures of Instagrammers or something or these other like I work with some models and, and or, or influencers and all that stuff. And my my girlfriend be like, oh, or other people are like, she's so beautiful. And, I, and all I can see is how unhappy they are inside. And I'm like, no, like not at all. Like I, I can get how you see the aesthetics, but I am, I'm, I'm so, I'm not, I don't want to say I'm so turned off by that, but it's just like, no, like that's not real that. And there's so much unhappiness there. And not, not that we should all be happy all the time, but like this, this falsity to me is so, no, I, I would much rather be with someone who doesn't fit the norm of what is aesthetically pleasing, but is comfortable. 
than someone who is like, you know, the supermodel, blah, blah, blah. But like, you know, is just dying on the inside. I mean, that's a little extreme, but I think you, um, I think I've mansplained enough and you get it. Uh, <laughs> but don't you think so then I want, so then from, I guess, you know, and this is just stuff I've been thinking about today, but it's like the, the path towards, you know, claiming our right, you know, our joy, our pleasure, which then becomes radiance and adaptability is, it's a massive commitment, right? It's such a huge commitment. And it's a commitment to um, ourselves, right? I think that that is one of the things that um, is just, it's stunning to me, you know, it's stunning to be in that, to be in the, that space of just realizing that um, we all have a responsibility to ourselves before we have a responsibility to anyone else, right? Well, it, it's interesting. I just had, I had a talk with two female friends recently and both are very different subjects, but both had this sort of saying about it, it wasn't until they really loved themselves that X, Y, Z, and I hadn't really put that together until listening to you now. And now it's kind of like, well, why is it so difficult to love ourselves? Why is it? Is that a, and is that just a human thing? Is that a society, a cultural thing? I don't, I don't know. I'm not expecting you to have that answer, but I'm sort of hearing it that way of like, why is it, how much time, did, why does it have to take so much time to love ourselves? Like, I mean, I would think on a real basic theoretical point, like, we should just love ourselves. Like it's who we are, but it's not that easy. Well, and I I think also, it goes back to that idea of like our, our, I mean, what we've kind of in some ways started about with trauma. It's like what the, you know, we come into this plane with physiology, but then we are molded by the circumstances of our surroundings, right? And so, our genes get expressed in relationship to our environment, which is what epigenetics is, right? So I, I often feel like what we're working with is like what is the physio physiology we present with and then what are the, what's our environment bring, you know, how does that inform, inform our um, growth? And then also like, I really believe that, um, you know, generational trauma is like, it's, it's real, right? Like I can see in my children, you know, um, like my knee injury, I see it in both of my children, actually. Um, my, um, some of my, the trauma that I've endured as a, as a woman just um, as a chain, you know, as a link in the chain of all the women that came before me, they also have that, right? And so I, I don't know if it's as simple, you know, I, I wish it were more simple. Um, but this is, you know, simply what I've been thinking about. But I think it's just, um, I guess I really believe that it has to do with how the world is reflected back to you when you're little and um, how safe you feel and how seen you feel. And then how that, that um, kind of 
the alchemy of that with, you know, our, our physiology and, and um, how our genetics get expressed. Definitely not the Pilates talk I was expecting to have today. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, what's so funny. I have, I've, I had this thing I was reading this morning and can I ask you guys some questions? <laughs> you, you can, I, I do. I don't say I, I have, um, I don't have too, too much time because I, uh, my, my, my fiance has some friends over and, and we're having like a, they're making dumplings, traditional Chinese dumplings upstairs. So I know, I know that's the thing, but yeah, hit, hit us away for a bit. So do you guys know John Cottingham and Todd Lyon? Do you know these two? They're both Rolfers. I know the name Cottingham. What was the other name? Todd Lyon. So there's just a lot of in with, you know, Stephen Porges and Peter Levine, like in the Berkeley kind of manual therapy scene, there was a lot of, um, and I've seen that, you know, there's, I've seen with the polyvagal stuff, a lot of Rolfing, Rolfers referenced. Rolfers, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you mentioned, well, Peter Levine was a Rolfer. Uh, Uh You mentioned Stanley Rosenberg before, who was a Rolfer. Um, uh, I think a lot, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of like secret rolfers. Like people are like, wait, they were a rolfer too. And whether it was like in the the sixties or seventies when people were doing it, or even still now, that uh, rolfers and SI people are like, you know, uh, out there and and doing stuff. Uh, I mean, even in Bessel van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score. I don't know if it's in that book or if it's other other talks. He mentioned how like rolfing was one of the most influential things he did for his sort of body and mind. It was like a, a profound awakening. Rick Hansen as well, who's a, a teacher of, of mindfulness and meditation and neuroscience. He talks about how Rolfing was a profound, and I've been trying to get him on the show. It's really difficult. They're too big for us. But, you know, there is, there's, you know, my my guess is partly through, you know, Peter Levine and what we've, we've had this, we had a, an oldie uh, Rolfer on our show before and he sort of mentioned I think he mentioned on our show how when Peter was sort of developing somatic experiencing, he was bringing it to the Rolfers and kind of being like, hey, so a lot of an, a, a lot of the first SD people were Rolfers. Uh, and so it's sort of spread within that. And I think my guess is Peter Levine and Stephen Porges are relatively interrelated, mm-hmm. as was Bessel van der Kolk a bit. So I think there's this sort of underbed of stuff going on. That's my take on it. I don't know if Nikki has a different take. No, I think that, I mean, I think Peter Levine was definitely influential in the, the rolfing training to especially help explain trauma that might be being released when someone is getting rolfed or touched or held, essentially held in a therapeutic space. So the body, the nervous system feels safe to do what it needs to do, but also in that and, and I think that's why maybe it's kind of surfacing now because of the polyvagal theory. And I feel like Peter Levine's work is kind of kind of resurfacing as being kind of popular. I think he's always been, especially with his Waking the Tiger book. That was a great, great, insightful book, but it also has um, exercises in it. But I think now it's you're able to anchor some kind of science Mm-hmm. to this experience that people are having. And I think that's what the, again, 
what this work is helping to make, put rolfing, I think rolfing too might be making or rolfing or SI work. It's kind of making another wave through um, maybe popularity and being able to be seen differently than just this heavy handed, I'm going to wail on your tissue, painful experience that it is also a way to kind of work through trauma, through touch and not necessarily talk therapy. Mm -hmm. And I think, and I think in some ways, and, and maybe that we're going to probably see more of that coming out of the pandemic when there's been such a lack of physical touch and all people have been doing is just talking, especially through the medium of zoom. Um, so yeah, I, I, to answer your question, I think that's, it's, it's kind of always been in there, but now with all this new ways of discussing trauma mm -hmm. in a way that that's digestible and easy to understand than yeah. just being like, oh, you know, your body's going to experience this and you're not really sure what's going on. Yeah, it's. I just found it interesting. I was reading something this morning and it talked about John Cottingham and then it, it, it made me realize, like you had said to me that part of your focus of this, this podcast was the kind of just your perspective as a rolfer. And so there does seem to be really truly a lot of intersectionality between the rolfing community and body-informed trauma therapy and polyvagal theory. And, you know, the, the reality of the situation, you know, I did structural integration when I went to massage school. I also did colonics. I got trained in structural integration and colonics at the same time. And um, what, and you know, what we all have been doing is it, we have been doing this, like we've all been doing it. It just, I think naming help us refine, helps us to refine our approach and optimize treatment protocols. Like that's mm -hmm. one of the things I think it would, it really does. Yeah. Extralize. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And like, I mean, Hakomi was a body mind practice that came out of a rolfer. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that there's a lot of, of, of that that's, that's been in. And what, one of the things I, I was listening to a cranial sacral podcast and this person on it was actually talking about, and I don't think, I don't think he was a rolfer, but I think he mentioned studying with, with some maybe separately, but how like, and this is an older podcast, but you're sort of saying how rolfers are always going about having more tools to work with. And so part of, I think, rolfing is, is using it as a framework, but the more tools you have. So a fair amount of rolfers seem to go to, to either biomechanical or biodynamic cranial. A lot seem to go into John Pierre Barral's visceral manipulation work. Uh, so like there's kind of like in some ways, similar, like you were saying for Pilates, it, it kind of gets you in a door. And that door is great and fine, but then it's like, well, if I go into this other door, I can also open these doors. Um, and the, I mean, there's sometimes, I don't, I don't remember if it was in my Rolf training or other times, but there's been certain trainings that say, you know, when you're touching a, when you're touching, when you touch someone, what are you touching, right? So are you touching the skin? Are you touching the muscle underneath it? And the thing is you're touching all the things, but you're touching a body. And so if you're just working on a physical realm, you're, you're never just doing that. So the more you can start to understand who and what you're working with, the more you can actually really be of, of help. You might, you might be able to do wonders to get their shoulder working in a perfect biomechanical way. Uh, 
But if there is this this pattern there that's underneath it, that's not a physiological pattern, it's going to probably keep coming back and coming in different ways. And so learning how to actually work with a, a human being, not just a shoulder, is, is for me a pretty big part of what Rolfing or SI work is. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, that's where we all are. That's where we meet. We're all seeking in the same way, right? We're all, right. our story, all three of our stories is not a straight line, right? It's just like, it, we, we've, in, like we've all created our own modalities based on, and I think that that's what the visionary is, right? You learn from different people and then you take your, you know, that information and you digest it and disseminate it in a way that's, you know, fills a void for people. And I think that that's what the visionary does, you know? Right. We are all in that, that vein, I would say. Mm -hmm. And luckily there's people like you who can not just take that, but spin it into classes to train others. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I am doing this menopause program too. And, and really the reason I, I started to do it was because I was like, why is it that generally men tend to gain power as they age and women don't? I was like, what's up with that? Like, and then I really started to look at what happens physiologically because physiologically women are older women are really primed for being a force in culture. And um, I was like, wow, that's kind of wild. And then I started to, to feel like I always want to start a training, of course, you know, like that's what I want. That's what I do, right? It's like putting structure and format together. But I really, I feel, uh, I feel like pretty lucky that that's, that's what I get to do, you know? Well, so, we're very lucky that you are a pioneer in that bringing in somatic studies mm-hmm. in, in, in a bunch of different ways and able to tap into something very mainstream Pilates and being able to, to add the juiciness to it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I just think, I mean, you're just a unique teacher in that way and not to say all teachers need to be that way because as you know, we're talking and thinking about like the evolution of, of practitioners. And so, you know, for me, I kind of went into, I didn't know rolfing was going to be my only career. I went into it as I need something to do after college. I want to be in the wellness, you know, industry, but I didn't know in what way. And just reflecting on how I've grown as a practitioner. And before I was very much kind of like, I want to just fix it, get in, get out of there. They're psychologists for for the, the trauma. But as I've gotten older and, you know, experience more, I can, I'm not going to be a phony, you know, for me, you know, thinking about, uh, you know, age 22, 23, you know, being, having like me being able to talk about trauma. I mean, come on. (laughs) So I, I honor my, you know, being humbled in that moment and also very happy of the, the growth and just, what I've been able to learn my tools and be able to show up in an authentic place of really truly, truly being able to talk about trauma and all the different processes that bodies go through and the mind go through as we change. Mm -hmm. And um, so, 
Yeah. And it's not to knock the people who don't want to do that because it's not for everybody. And it's, there's a perfect place for the, the set rep rest protocol, get in get out, do the work and. <laughs> yeah. And it's, nice. somewhere else. you know, that's nice sometimes. Yeah. There yeah. is no, there is no bad. There only is. Mm-hmm. So Kelly, how do people like uh, either find out more about you or find out about this class or uh, all that sort of fun well, stuff? Well, the, the Pilates teacher training is connectedcenter.com, but the, the school is the Kane School and it's still going strong in New York City. But you can find us at Connected Center because that's the name of the space. Um, my email is kaneschoolnyc at gmail.com, K-A-N-E schoolnyc at gmail.com. I'm going to launch this menopause program, which is going to be, um, it's good. It's called the wild women's council. And, uh, it's just teaching women how to optimize their physiology and support them to do it so that they can come into their power and their prime time. Um, is it wild with a Y or an I W I L D or W Y I L D wild women's council. And I'm changing the women's with an E to an X. I think, I think I'm going to rebrand it with an X. Um, so female bodied people. And then um, I teach hit classes with Whitney Tucker. Do you remember Whitney? Um, I don't, I yeah. don't. Um, we talked about this now. I don't know. I've yeah. been paying attention to her. I think either you introduced her a while ago and um Yes. So she and I teach hit classes, which we started in the pandemic because I was like, what do people need if you're at home? Like, what do they need? So we do Wim Hof. uh, We do Nadi Shodana. Sometimes we do kind of different priming breathing techniques, but then we do hit (laughs) and she and I co-teach hit together. And that you can find information on that through embodiedpotential.com, which is her website, or you can hit me up and um, I can get you on that train. It's a really good train. That's been a really um, nice thing. So those are the things I'm doing right now. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, I'm really grateful for the time. I would love to talk more, um, but we've already talked way amounts and yeah. also um i got dumplings waiting for me yeah. uh, <laughs> and um, thank you so much for coming and chatting me up i really appreciate it nikki thank you for asking me to come and chat sure. and and i hope i see you soon you know my bestie lives in durango so i do i mean i know it's not close to there but i do make my way to colorado quite a bit and i hope i I see you in the flesh. Yes, me too. There's been a hawk out here while I've been talking to you oh, guys. Nice. It's been circling around. All right, take care, you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. See you later. Bye. Yeah. Bye. Thanks for listening to us at Touching Into Presence. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. You can find out more about Kelly at KaneSchoolNYC at gmail.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate if you'd leave a positive review of the podcast and subscribe to it through the platform of your choice. When you do this, it really helps other people find us, and we greatly appreciate your support. We look forward to hearing back from you and seeing you on our next conversation at Touching Into Presence. Bye-bye.